Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. In the last episode of Robin Hood, I told you how Steve Mnuchin went from a Yale nobody to a partner at Goldman Sachs. How the lottery of life put Steve amongst the elite, affording him the opportunity to accelerate his banking career. With his father's senior role at Goldman Sachs and his membership of the secretive Skull and Bones Society, Mnuchin's path to Wall Street and riches was served up on a silver platter. And in 2002, after banking nearly $60 million, he was ready to go it alone. Then something happened this week. I received a message. If Mnuchin had not exploited the situation, some other scoundrel would have. As if to say that moral bankruptcy is acceptable in a fraud system. Mnuchin is not the only scoundrel in this story. But to me, he is the poster child of privilege, greed and duplicity. Someone who has become extremely wealthy by exploiting the system and leaving a trail of destruction behind him. The reason I wanted to make this show, the starting point, was when I made a show called The Money Game, where I was looking at the systemic abuse of the financial system by Wall Street and government. This system created the 2008 financial crisis, profited on the collapse and again on its recovery. While millions of innocent, hard-working people lost their homes and jobs as the world entered recession and the rich got richer. And everywhere I looked, one name kept coming up. Steven Mnuchin. I, Stephen Mnuchin, do solemnly swear that I shall support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It is my great honor tonight to present our new Treasury Secretary of the United States, Stephen Mnuchin. Mr. Mnuchin is the ultimate Wall Street insider. From the moment he graduated from college until today, he has worked at a big bank or a hedge fund. If Wall Street threatens to blow up the economy again, does anyone seriously expect Mr. Mnuchin to get tough with his old buddies and tell him to knock it off? You might say that he did not personally authorize One West or IndyMac to cheat me out of my home, but his fortune rose as a direct result of managing a company that routinely engaged in irresponsible behavior. Advocates for low-income communities described One West Bank under Mnuchin as a foreclosure machine. Secretary Mnuchin, with working families struggling to make ends meet, why is this administration giving the ultra-wealthy this massive tax cut? There are a lot of slippery interests that make a lot of money off of this rather creepy shell corporation, international crookedness, kleptocracy economy. Stephen Mnuchin. 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 
I'm of the belief that there are things which would disqualify you from certain privileges. If an athlete is exposed as a drug cheat, they are disqualified from the Olympics. So why isn't someone who cheats the financial system disqualified from high office? Aside from the president, there may be no individual with a tighter grasp on the levers of our economy than the Secretary of Treasury. That has been true since the days of Alexander Hamilton. When you read about the nominee for Treasury Secretary, given all the power that this position holds, you hope not to see phrases like foreclosure machine, redlining, offshore funds, and predatory lending. In this second episode of Robin Hood, I'm going to look at how Mnuchin exploited the 2008 financial crisis, buying a bank and profiting off illegal practices, making himself and his friends billions of dollars. A modern-day Robin Hood, stealing from the poor to give to the rich. From Bedford, UK, I am Peter McCormack, and this is Defiance. In 2002, Steve Mnuchin left Goldman Sachs with $46 million in stock and $12.6 million in cash. For his next career move, he looked to his friend, former Yale roommate, Goldman Sachs colleague and Skull and Bones member, Eddie Lampert. Mnuchin joined his hedge fund, ESL Investments, as vice chairman and would later go on to help Lampert siphon more than $2 billion from the Sears coffers. Following his short stint at ESL, Mnuchin was hired by billionaire George Soros to manage SFM Capital Management, and in 2004, Mnuchin established his own fund, June Capital Management, with two former Goldman Sachs colleagues backed by George Soros. June Investments was a mix of real estate, movie financing deals, and complex financial products, specifically life insurance policies. These policies were designed to exploit cash-poor older Americans. June purchased these policies at discount from third parties with plans to package them into settlements which could be sold on to investors. According to the New York Times, Life settlements represent one of the most macabre actuarial bets that Wall Street has dreamed up. It's a wager that the elderly person buying the policy will die sooner rather than later, meaning the hedge fund does not have to make many premium payments to keep the insurance policy in force and collect the payout upon that person's death. While Mnuchin's dealings with Trump prior to his nomination are unclear, himself stating, I haven't really commented on what business we've done together. I would describe it as more of a personal relationship than a professional relationship. He did invest in Trump's Waikiki Hotel in Hawaii, and he also contributed the maximum to Trump's campaign and gave another $200,000 to the Republican National Committee. Like many hedge funds, June Capital managed to avoid U.S. tax by ensuring money was kept offshore. Mr. Mnuchin, you ran a hedge fund for a few years starting in 2004, and I've been trying to get my arms around the Mnuchin web of bank accounts and shell companies. They were in the Cayman Islands, in Anguilla. How many employees did you have in Anguilla? Uh, We didn't have any employees in Anguilla. How many customers did you have there? Uh, We didn't have any customers that resided in Anguilla. Did you have an office there? Uh, We did not have an office ourselves there. So you just had a post office box? 
most government treasury secretaries are keen to encourage tax payment and avoid offshoring funds. Thus, Mnuchin found himself on the defensive at the Senate confirmation hearings when he failed to disclose he was the director of multiple offshore funds. He also failed to disclose $100 million in property and an art collection conveniently in his children's names. There is no clearer example than Mr. Mnuchin's hedge fund setting up outposts in Anguilla and the Cayman Islands, an action that can be explained only by the island's 0% tax rate. It certainly wasn't for ease of commute or the infrastructure. When Trump came to office, he promised to drain the swamp. But to land his yes-man, he obviously said, fuck it. After the 2008 crash, June Capital was wound down, and in 2009, one of the partners, Daniel Nydick, took ownership of the real estate arm, while Mnuchin and his other partner, Chip Selig, focused on Hollywood. They created June Entertainment to pursue Mnuchin's goal of rubbing shoulders with Hollywood's elite. In 2013, he went into business with Brett Ratner, merging June Entertainment with Ratner's Rat Pack, who the LA Times later reported was accused by six women of sexual harassment or misconduct, including actress Olivia Munn, who alleged that he masturbated in front of her when she went to deliver a meal to his trailer. Now, there is no evidence to suggest that Mnuchin was aware of Ratner's misconduct. Still, he does have a habit of associating himself with massive cut. Anyway, back to 2009. Following the collapse of the housing market and the world entering a recession, Mnuchin was planning his next role, something more suited for a villain in one of his movies than real life. He returned to banking to buy failed mortgage lender IndyMac, which had spectacularly collapsed the previous year. Federal regulators had to step in and seize the mortgage lender after a run on the bank by panicked depositors led to a collapse and was reopened under the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp's supervision. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, or the FDIC, is a government agency designed to protect both consumers and the US financial system, and is best known for its deposit insurance, which protects customers from losses when a bank fails. The FDIC was desperate to offload IndyMac, but struggled to find a buyer until Mnuchin stepped in. He gathered together a supergroup of investors including hedge fund bigwigs George Soros and John Paulson, private equity investor Christopher Flowers and computer mogul Michael Dell, investing $1.6 billion in the bank, pennies on the dollar for the assets being acquired. Mnuchin argues that his investment team were the only ones who would buy into bad banks at the time, thus preventing catastrophic losses at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp., but it was the sweetener offered by the FDIC that de-risked any investment. Reviving a tool of the savings and loans collapse of the 80s, where it would help buyers of bad banks cover losses and distress loans. In other words, good loans are fine, and with bad loans, we'll cover your losses. A win-win for any new owner. We invested $1.6 billion into a failing institution where most investors were running for the hills. 
Mnuchin said in a written testimony delivered to the Senate Finance Committee. Yet the investment of $1.6 billion in the bank was taken in exchange for all of its assets, its branches, real estate deposits and loans, which were valued at more than $20 billion. In the time that Mnuchin and his associates owned the bank, it turned a profit of close to $3 billion. Most of that, however, coming from the FDIC via the loss-sharing agreement, where the agency covered 80% of all losses over $2.5 billion and 95% of losses over $3.8 billion. Meanwhile, the FDIC lost $13 billion on the bank. IndyMac was the ultimate fixer-upper, and where Mnuchin would prove himself as Robin Hood. At the time of its collapse, IndyMac held tens of thousands of bad loans. They specialised in what was known as Alt-A loans, for those with good credit scores but could not produce proof of income or assets. These were known as liar loans or ninja loans. No income, no job, no assets. IndyMac saw these as no-loss loans because if the buyer defaulted, then they would get the title for the home, and more often than not, the title was worth more than the amount owed. IndyMac was able to package these loans up into the mortgage-backed securities which caused the housing collapse. Many of these loans were adjustable rate mortgages, loans which are offered at a teaser rate, where the initial interest is set low but would balloon after a few years. This would allow people to stretch themselves to buy homes that they could not normally afford. As house prices continue to rise, buyers could refinance their loans by borrowing against the increased value of their home or selling it for a profit. But this strategy had a fatal flaw, as it relied upon the housing market growing and house prices appreciating in value. Riskier and riskier loans were offered, and people who could not previously get a mortgage were able to get on the ladder, with some buying multiple properties. But as the market slowed and prices failed to appreciate, some owners struggled to sell or refinance their homes. And this wasn't their only problem. There was a second product which added to IndyMac's headache, the reverse mortgage, a type of loan which allowed homeowners to convert a portion of their property into cash. This type of loan does not require the homeowner to make any loan repayments. Rather, the loan balance is due and payable out of the remaining property equity when the borrower dies, moves or sells the home. But more often than not, it is when the borrower dies, as the product was regularly targeted at older people giving them a way to release equity from their property during their retirement. In 2007, as house prices started to flatten, defaults and foreclosures mounted as homeowners could not afford their new adjusted rates. With losses growing, investors pulled their money from the bank, leaving them without funds to issue new loans or pay the cash advances on reverse mortgages. And on July the 11th, 2009, IndyMac collapsed. When Mnuchin bought IndyMac, it had 178,000 foreclosures in the pipeline, and his team figured out that pushing these foreclosures through would be the quickest and most profitable way to turn around the bank. As such, the newly named One West became a foreclosure machine. As quickly as One West returned to profitability, it gained a reputation as one of the most brutal and heartless banks in the country. While 102,000 of the 178,000 foreclosures inherited were offered reduced payments, 
many could not refinance their homes as One West employed a number of tactics to foreclose on customers. Firstly, there was the servicer-driven default, where homeowners were encouraged to miss payments to make them eligible for help, and when they did, the bank moved to foreclose. And then there was dual tracking, where servicers would negotiate loan modifications while pursuing foreclosures at the same time. If that was not enough, as cited by David Dayan, author of Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story, there was a decided racial component. 68% of One West 36,000 plus foreclosures in California were in non-white areas. In addition, One West was a market leader in foreclosing on the elderly. Its subsidiary, Financial Freedom, carried out a disproportionate number of reverse mortgage foreclosures which target seniors to suck out their home equity. Finally, One West engaged in thousands of robo-signings, a fraudulent practice of signing sworn affidavits without reviewing the documents. In the July 2009 deposition of One West Vice President Erica Johnson-Sec, she confirmed the signing of 750 mortgage documents in one week. These were sworn affidavits where Johnson-Sec claimed under penalty of perjury that she reviewed all the relevant information in the mortgage file including the important information which would lead to someone losing their home. When asked how much time she has spent reviewing each document, she said, I've changed my signature considerably. It's just an E now, so no more than 30 seconds. She further admitted she didn't even read the documents before signing them and didn't sign them in the presence of a notary. These practices had severe consequences on many homeowners. Christina Clifford missed a payment for the first time in eight years on her LA condo when the economy crashed in 2009. One West agreed to lower her payments and Christina sent her cheque in May. One West cashed the cheque but then rescinded the offer two months later, claiming paperwork was missing, what would become a regular excuse for the bank. There are so many other people out there like me who got left in the dust, Clifford said. Steve Mnuchin profited from people like me even when we did everything we could to keep our homes. And by March 2010, One West forced Clifford from her home. David Dayan noticed some particular harsh treatment of customers. I've heard stories about One West foreclosing because of a 27-cent deficiency on loans. I've heard stories about One West borrowers being locked out of their homes in in a blizzard in one case. I've heard just really uh, tough stories about what One West did in the wake of the financial crisis to mortgage borrowers. In another example, refusing to negotiate with Greg Horoski and his wife, Diane Yano Horoski, when the couple fell behind on payments due to Greg getting sick, Judge Jeffrey Spinner noted they were treated to mortifying abuse and generally acted in a manner that was not only inequitable, unconscionable, vexatious and opprobrious, but also harsh, repugnant, shocking and repulsive. One West commented at the time, we respectfully disagree with the lower court's unprecedented ruling, which wiped out the $525,000 the couple owed in mortgage payments. It also claimed it had been extremely active in working with consumers on home loan modifications through the Obama administration's Home Affordable Modification Program and other low modification initiatives. But la piste de resistance for One West was the foreclosing on a 90-year-old woman, Ozzie Lofton, who owed the bank just 30 cents but mistakenly sent a cheque for 3 cents. 
And remember those reverse mortgages I mentioned earlier, often pitched to older homeowners? 87-year-old Colleen Eisen Hodroff purchased her home in 1963 and lived in the house for 54 years with her husband. With the mortgage paid off, in 2006 they got a reverse mortgage with Financial Freedom, the subsidiary of IndyMac, and they assured that Colleen could keep living there even if her husband passed away. But in 2014, after her husband died, she was forced out of the family home. My husband Monroe passed on September 12, 2014. A mere 10 days later, despite what, he, what we had been told, Financial Freedom contacted me and told me that I needed to pay off the loan immediately. This was news to me. I hear that Steve Mnuchin was a leader of the bank that is doing this to me and other seniors. I do not think a man like that should be the Treasury Secretary and in charge of our economy. We can't let that happen. After releasing episode one of Robin Hood, another listener wrote to me asking if I disagree with foreclosures. I don't. I understand that if you take out a home loan and can't afford to pay it back, then this is a likely outcome. I do though expect a certain amount of dignity from Wall Street in fixing a crisis of its creation. We live in a society that has a social safety net, so when no bankers went to jail after blowing up the economy, is it a little too much to ask that Wall Street does everything it can to keep homeowners in their homes? It was the FDIC who incentivised the creation of One West foreclosure machine. The loss sharing agreement helped buyers of banks cover losses from distressed loans, with One West receiving $1.2 billion as part of the deal it reached with the FDIC when it acquired IndyMac. In Aaron Glant's book, Homewrecker, he writes, The government agreed to extend a generous loss share agreement. If, for instance, a homeowner owed $300,000 on an FHA-insured mortgage, but the home only sold at foreclosure auction for $100,000, the government agreed to reimburse the rest, all $200,000. While the sale technically required the company to continue the FDIC's limited loan modification, as Glantz writes, the lost share agreement effectively removed economic incentives that would have otherwise caused Mnuchin's group to think twice about foreclosing on homeowners. As part of the arrangement, One West was required to administer loan modifications in accordance with the Home Affordable Modification Program, designed to encourage banks to help struggling homeowners avoid foreclosure with reduced monthly mortgage payments that are affordable and sustainable over the long term. Yet One West was already building a reputation for using false documents in foreclosures within months of acquiring IndyMac. An audit of One West's loan modification program by the Office Inspector General concluded that the FDIC's arrangement with One West created an incentive for the bank to foreclose on loans rather than modify them. Former FDIC Chairman Sheila Baer requested that the FDIC Office of Inspector General assist in reviewing the allegations that One West executives had instructed employers to reject as many loan modification applications as possible and created an environment that encouraged loan modification staff to misinform borrowers about their eligibility status, routinely shred modification applications, and inappropriately deny loan modifications. 
this is where a lot of the problems came in. One West, like pretty much every other mortgage servicer, had an incentive to foreclose on borrowers over uh, making loan modifications. They profited from foreclosure more so than from keeping people in their homes. And uh, they did it in, on industrial scale using tactics that were on the edge of or completely skirting the law in order to make these foreclosures happen. So uh, we have evidence from depositions that were taken with One West employees that they were signing affidavits attesting to all the information in a loan file without reading them. The individual vice president, Erica Johnson Sec, in a deposition said that uh, she was asked how long she spends on a loan file before signing this affidavit saying that everything in the loan file is true. And she answered that, well, I've gotten better at writing my signature quicker, so I, it takes me 30 seconds. So she was spending 30 seconds on signing these affidavits that say, I have read everything in this loan file and everything in it is true. So that's obvious perjury, and it was mass perjury on an industrial scale. One West managed to foreclose on more than 77,000 households, including 35,000 in California, where the bank was headquartered. The bank was responsible for 39% of all foreclosures nationwide from 2009 through to late 2014, even though it only serviced about 17% of the loans. And then suddenly, it all becomes clear. You can foreclose on someone's home, sell it for any price, and yet still claim the remaining balance from the federal government. There is absolutely no incentive to keep people in their homes when at any point you can get ownership of that property and extract its value immediately rather than going through a lengthy loan repayment. But it didn't have to be this way. Aaron Glantz also noted in his book that after the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt's plan saved homeowners from foreclosure. The government created a corporation to buy back the distressed mortgages and then work to refinance those mortgages, lowering monthly payments to reflect the real underlying values of the homes or adding years to the mortgages to make the monthly payments more manageable. If a homeowner missed mortgage payments, rather than initiating a foreclosure after two months, as was done by many banks during the recession, the government would have held off an entire year, maybe more. In the event the homeowner still couldn't keep up, the government would have acquired the home, fixed it up, and rented it out until another person bought it. Who could ever dream up such wild ideas? Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for one. To stanch foreclosures during the Great Depression, FDR created the Homeowners Loan Corporation, HOLC, which bought more than a million distressed mortgages from banks and modified them. When the modification didn't work, it sold the foreclosed homes, 200,000 of them, to individuals. To make the foreclosure machine efficient, you still need someone to buy the properties, even if it's only for a fraction of its price. But who would be interested in such a deal? Thomas Barrack, that's who. Another vulture who took advantage of the financial crisis to build an empire, but him as a modern-day slumlord. The former Reagan advisor came up with an idea. He would buy these foreclosed homes in bulk and on the cheap, directly from the banks or at auctions, and rent them out. He was just missing the cash to do it. So he went to One West, who agreed to lend him the money he needed to buy the foreclosed homes from them. One West was now foreclosing on homes, selling them on the cheap to Barrack's company, Colony Homes, and pocketing the difference from the federal government. 
and it was using the federal government's money to lend to Barrack, who could then give it back to One West, ensuring that Mnuchin's bank could extract the value from these homes. So Barrack, a major Trump donor who also made it onto the shortlist for Treasury Secretary alongside Mnuchin, had a pipeline of cash from One West whilst keeping the average Joe out of the market. As colony homes grew, other funds got in on the act of buying up foreclosed properties and rapidly a company with even deeper pockets called Invitation Homes started buying up foreclosed properties. And at a phenomenal rate, thousands of properties at a time, sometimes spending as much as $100 million in a week and at one point bought 1,400 homes in Atlanta in a single day. Invitation Homes was estimated to have spent $9.6 billion buying up properties and repackaging them as rentals. They were betting that this was the bottom of the housing market and it would only go up, and they were right. In 2017, Invitation Homes went public, raising a further $1.8 billion. They then merged with Waypoint, the company that bought Barracks Colony Capital two years prior, to become the biggest single-family rental company in the nation, owning over 82,000 homes. So who owned Invitation Homes at the time? Blackstone, America's largest hedge fund run by Stephen Schwartzman, one of America's richest men. And guess what? He is also a graduate of Yale and a member of the Skull and Bone Society. Stephen Schwartzman is one of the wealthiest people in the United States and joined the Skull and Bones one year after George W. Bush. He currently has $554 billion under management and he is thought to be worth $18.3 billion himself. 10 million families lost their home due to foreclosure during the economic crisis. 10 million dreams were shattered and lives put on hold. And these 10 million families, now unable to buy a property, were instead forced to rent homes from the same bankers who had bought them on the cheap. In 2019... Blackstone sold their last remaining 11% of Invitation Home shares for $1.7 billion. And who runs Blackstone's real estate arm? A man called Paul Warp, who before Blackstone was executive vice president of guess who? One West. And prior to that was at June Capital, Mnuchin's fund. So if you think all these complex financial manoeuvres are carried out by hundreds of highly intelligent economists, you're wrong. It is a tiny handful of Wall Street bankers who play the system for themselves. And these bankers and billionaires are now running America. And just to show you how incestuous this all is, Joseph Otting, who stepped down two weeks ago as the US comptroller of the currency, the number two job in dealing with the finances of the country, he was previously president and CEO of One West. And who will replace him as the new COC? Brian Brooks, the former vice chairman of One West. One West is really involved on the back end of the foreclosure crisis, and Mnuchin is sort of tangentially involved in the front end. Uh, you know, in the book, we call him the Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, he, he seems to pop up in a lot of these uh, financial uh, mismanagement and, and malfeasance situations. But I would say his involvement, his core involvement, was in illegally foreclosing on borrowers. Okay, back to One West. How did they get away with all of this? In a leaked memo from the California Attorney General's office, it noted widespread misconduct in four key areas. 1. Signed, backdated and false instruments. 2. Made and directed unlawful credit bids at trustee sales which resulted in the wrong parties winning auctions 
and the unlawful evasion of documentary transfer tax obligations. 3. Performed other acts in the foreclosure process without valid legal authority. and 4. Failed to comply with the requirements related to the execution, timing and mailing of foreclosure documents. Uh, one of us was doing other things like backdating and falsifying loan documents, rigging certain bids for loan auctions, and engaging in this behavior. And there's, there's a pretty formidable set of evidence for this. A lot of it was done in California by the Attorney General's office, which wrote a paper recommending that the office uh, charge One West Bank for thousands of, of violations of California law and widespread misconduct in the foreclosure process. Unfortunately, the Attorney General at the time, who was Kamala Harris, who is now a U.S. Senator and was a presidential candidate in 2020, decided not to charge One West Bank for this uh, misconduct. And uh, this wouldn't have come out at all if I wasn't sent the, the memo that alleged these various forms of misconduct in a plain brown wrapper, unmarked with no address on it, that was sent to me shortly before the 2016 election. Uh, I was able to verify that, that it was a, a real document. And I released it uh, in early 2017, shortly after Mnuchin was nominated as a nominee for Treasury Secretary. And, and this was a big part of his hearing uh, in, in the Senate to confirm him. Of the 913 documents reviewed by the Consumer Law Section, 909 were backdated, but progress was hampered as the Consumer Law Section feared that One West would sue them similar to when One West shut down an inquiry into financial freedom, the subsidiary which handled One West's reverse mortgages. This wasn't just mean-spirited foreclosure practices. Mnuchin's bank had acted outside of the law, and the memo recommended that the Attorney General, Kamala Harris, authorise a filing of civil enforcement against One West. Still, Kamala Harris, who would later be sworn in as a senator and, in the future, vote on Mnuchin's nomination as Treasury Secretary, declined to prosecute the case, which her own investigators had urged her to. Now, we should probably mention here that in 2016, Mnuchin made a donation to Harris's Senate campaign, while this was only $2,000, George Soros, an investor in One West, maxed out his donation to the Harris campaign in 2015. Now please do not take this as any accusation of wrongdoing. It is probably just a huge coincidence that those who had gained from Kamala's decision to not prosecute the bank are also her donors. Still, failure to prosecute Mnuchin left the door open for him to take the role as Trump's Treasury Secretary. And it isn't likely that Trump would care about these issues. Mnuchin's would-be boss has a history of welcoming foreclosures and real estate market collapses. In a 2006 audiobook from Trump University, he said, I sort of hope there's a real estate crash, because if there is a bubble burst, as they call it, you know you can make a lot of money. Trump University was widely regarded as a scam and went out of business after former students and the New York Attorney General sued it. After winning the election in 2016, Trump agreed to pay a $25 million settlement. Senator Ron Wyden, 
the top Democrat on the Senate Finance Committee was concerned about Mnuchin's appointment. Given Mr Mnuchin's history of profiting off the victims of predatory lending, I look forward to asking him how his Treasury Department would work for Americans who are still waiting for the economic recovery to show up in their communities. And Mnuchin responded to the various accusations directed at him. Since I was first nominated to serve as Treasury Secretary, I have been maligned as taking advantage of others' hardship in order to earn a buck. Nothing could be further from the truth, he said in prepared remarks for his Senate Finance Committee confirmation hearing. Yet Mnuchin failed to mention that one of his banking units, the company called Financial Freedom that refinanced pensioners' homes, agreed to pay an $80 million settlement to the government for taking unreasonable advantage of thousands of seniors. He also failed to mention that One West paid $8 million in remediation for improper foreclosure practices. In the short period Mnuchin and his friends owned the bank, they faced over 800 lawsuits with approximately one-third of these for improper foreclosures. Add to this that One West was accused of racial discrimination with their refusal to open banks in minority communities. We can safely say that Steve Mnuchin is full of shit. His history at One West was a hot topic during the confirmation hearings. With so many questions around his track record, how did he navigate this? Well, by lying, of course. He even denied that One West ever robo-signed foreclosure documents, despite all the evidence contrary to this. Rather, Mnuchin claimed to be a white knight who saved the bank and many homeowners from foreclosure. Yet in Ohio, One West used out-of-state signers in Texas to speed up foreclosures. And in New Jersey, One West was temporarily banned from any foreclosures at all due to robo-signing concerns. And New York judges overturned a number of its defaults on similar grounds. And in 2011, Reuters found that One West had filed documents three months before they legally owned the properties in question. A watchdog group, Campaign for Accountability, called upon the Justice Department to investigate Mnuchin for allegedly making false statements under oath to Congress about his actions at One West between 2009 and 2015. And according to the United States Code, false statements to Congress is an offence punishable with prison, Yet Mnuchin's prize was one of the top jobs in government. So let's just recap here. Mnuchin becomes head of the mortgage department at Goldman Sachs, selling the products which would blow up the economy. Goldman Sachs realises that mortgages are defaulting and makes billions of dollars shorting the market. The economy blows up and then Mnuchin partners with his billionaire buddies, buys a bank and a bunch of loans for pennies on the dollar... The government subsidises any losses on these lows accrued. He then maximises profit by forcing people out of the homes and in just six years he flips the bank for profits of more than $1.5 billion. We haven't even got into the $3.2 million he made from Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme and his countless other lawsuits and shenanigans. But we will get into that in the next episode. Nobody would or should condemn investors for picking up a failing business and turning it around. If anything, this should be saluted. Nobody should blame the investors for the incompetence of government or the FDIC. But, and it is a big but, when you peel back the layers of Wall Street and government, it is easy to see how this kleptocracy operates. This is not a partisan issue. Don't forget this was happening under Obama's watch too. The revolving door of Wall Street and government has created a system where those who create the rules 
benefit from the rules and seemingly law-breaking goes unpunished. The odd multi-million dollar fine for a company making billions of dollars is no disincentive for predatory conduct. We are stuck in a system where the rich get richer and the poor pay for it. Where the teachers, firemen and nurses have their taxes automatically deducted from their salary while these rich bankers can create myriad shell corporations and offshore entities to avoid tax. Steve Mnuchin has spent his life abusing the system, backdating and faking documents to take the homes of hard-working families and making himself rich. Yet when another man is accused of trying to spend a fake $20 bill, he pays for it with his life. Why is it that one man is killed for a measly 20 bucks, and yet the other, who brings misery to millions of families, is rewarded with a seat at the highest level of government? In the next episode of Robin Hood, I will be looking into Mnuchin's time on the board of Sears, his movie business, and how he and his wife used government planes as private jets. This show was produced by Tom Pattinson and Danny Knowles. Additional thanks to Daniel Johnson for artwork, Alexi Papalexopoulos for voiceovers, as well as guest David Dayan. Our website is defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin. Available at kraken.com or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. My name is Peter McCormack. You can check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which is available at whatbitcoindid.com and I'll be back next week with another episode of Defiance.